This is an ABC podcast. On Conversations from Home today, my guest is Naomi Shehab Nye. Naomi grew up between the Midwest of the United States, where her mum came from, and the Middle East. Her dad was Palestinian, and when Naomi was a teenager, her family spent time in Jerusalem and the West Bank. That's where Naomi got to know her grandmother, a woman who lived to be 106. Naomi started writing poems as a six-year-old, and she's been writing ever since. Her new book, Cast Away, Poems from Our Time, celebrates one of her favourite hobbies, picking up rubbish from the side of the street, something she does wherever in the world she finds herself. Hi, Naomi. Hi, Sarah. It's so wonderful to be with you again. Tell me whereabouts you're sitting right now, Naomi. Where are you talking to us from? Well, I'm speaking to you from old downtown San Antonio, Texas, and I am sitting in a neighborhood where all of the houses are around 120 years old, and I'm in my husband's studio because he retains the only landline in our household, and I threw him out so that I could have his landline. And the trees above me are very tall. They're pecan trees. They shower nuts down upon us in the autumn, and right now it's springtime, so it's very green. It's been raining a lot. And, of course, everybody's in quarantine. We're all staying home. And what kind of town is is San Antonio, Naomi? San Antonio is a very precious, democratic, I would like to say, Texas town. It's 63% Latino, primarily Mexican-American town. We are a very old town. We have a river that runs through the heart of downtown, and it is one of our big tourist attractions. It's a very narrow river, but very beautiful. It has a walk next to it that extends for 15 miles, and you can walk all through downtown and go to museums and go to missions, historic places, restaurants, cafes, bars, clubs, all kinds of places without ever coming up to the level of the street, which is nice. There's a sense of kind of timelessness, traveling back in time. It is not an arid city. Many people think of Texas as being a desert, which is not true at all. It's only true for a few small sections of Texas, but in this part of Texas, it's more semi-tropical. We have a lot of palm trees, and there are a lot of Mexican restaurants all closed right now. Um, How are you personally handling the, the social isolation, the having to stay at home? How does that fit for you? Well, for me, it's... You know, in some ways, it's essentially fine because poets are, by nature, a little hermetic. We like to hover over our desks. We like to stare at single sentences for hours and move them around. So I don't mind staying at home, and I don't mind being on my own with my husband here. You know, I never feel lonely because I'm a reader, and I've always thought my whole life, you know, if you have good books to read at your fingertips, you couldn't really be lonely. But the person I'm missing most is our little grandson, who's four years old, And uh, we're used to spending a lot of time with him. And right now, because he's having more contact with more people than we are, we're not having contact with anyone, we're not getting to see him. Do you talk to him on on the phone, Naomi, or how are you guys staying in touch? Yes, we've been 
We have been doing that, and today he wanted me during a FaceTiming chat to carry the phone around the house and let him speak to all his favorite toys and the cat <laughs> and the chair he sits in and the hand-washing stool. He wanted to see all his little places in the house, and he seemed quite heartened that they were all still here waiting for him. Yeah. You say, Naomi, that you can't be lonely if you have your books around you. Are you reading different yes. kinds of books at the moment or what do you find yourself reaching for? I've been for a long time in my life a person who likes to read, say, three books at once. I've always done that since I was a kid and I usually like to have them in different categories like poetry, fiction, nonfiction. So I'm doing that right now, but I'm not reading books that particularly relate to pandemics, for example. Like a lot of people have told me they're ordering books about the plague and the kind of nightmare experiences. That would actually be the last thing I would want to read right now. You're also, I'm sure, writing poetry. What have, what have you been writing about over these last few weeks? Well, I have been writing about the moment and the way it feels to be in place for so many days. I think it alters your sense of time. You start thinking about the present as a very deeply layered substance. You know, you're not rushing through your day trying to go somewhere else, although I always try not to be rushing because I think that's one of the great detrimental modern habits is rushing around too much. So I try to be a slow mover and kind of a contemplative, you know, presence during the day with myself. But right now, when we're really not going anywhere, I mean, not even down to the grocery, not even to the anywhere, it's, it's a different thing because you wake up in the morning and you actually think, do I want to get dressed today? Maybe I won't. <laughs> Maybe I'll just like let this long, languid morning last all day. But I am writing, I'm writing every single day like a little journal from the quarantine, notes of the day, some things other people say, things that I remember. I feel as if my memory is altered this time, you know, being at home like this. I feel I'm remembering different things. I'm, I'm thinking about different scenes. And, you know, I think one gift that writers share is that belief that the mind is a well, like a deep water well with, en with endless depth. And you keep throwing your bucket in and hoping something interesting comes up or something useful or some, some sentence, some voice, some memory that you haven't written too much about already. Something new to think about. And somehow in days like this that feel so slow, so long, so rich in a way, but also with a lot of trauma around their edges because we can't stay away from the news even for an entire day. You know, we're dashing in there to see what's happening now. So that gives it like a little edge, a little quality of the preciousness of time. And, you know, we're, we're here. We're still here. We're not fighting for our lives at this moment as so many people are. But also, Sarah, people have been saying things to me like, you know, I really haven't considered what it's like to be a refugee in Syria these days, to be living out in a tent, ragged, without any context of your town or your tribe or your family, you know, feeling honored, respected. What would that be like in a time of pandemic? And I'm touched that many people seem to be happy 
having those kinds of thoughts that they say they don't often have? What would it be like to be scared of a virus, but already be under lockdown? That feeling of being at risk. I mean, perhaps it could be good for the psyche in some way that you you restore your sense of preciousness. You know, the way when, whenever we're sick, even if it's a mild, minor illness, and you go outside again, or you feel yourself like back in the flurry of life again, it always feels so joyous and expansive. And you think, oh, I'd forgotten how great this is just to go to a cafe and sit here and uh, feel well again. Now, it's as if everyone's on the edge. And you know, I think poetry kind of invites us to remember that edge at all times. Can you read us something that you've been writing, Naomi, in in this time of being on edge? Yeah, I've never read this to anyone, and so you're the first listener, thank you. And it's called, We Could Not Know. No, we could not know. Our tiny antennae reached out, trembling, hoping for a message clear advice on how to help. We were stunned by the smallness of our worlds. Here is the edge of your street, three scrappy leaves. From which tree did they fall? Here, the wrapper from someone else's gum. I could pick up trash without seeing anyone. No one would breathe on us in the iron chair back of the house, beside the bamboo, machines to connect us to the outside world. And now we would eat applesauce from cups, bake a batch of biscuits, feel the quiet settling down like a sheen of future disappearances when no one will answer the number we call. Thank you. Thank you for letting us... Presence and absence at once. Also, ironically, Sarah, I have... A brand new book that's just coming into the world this week. And, of course, I can't do anything to celebrate it publicly. I can't I can't have a book party. I can't go to a bookstore with it or anything. And the irony is it's about picking up trash, a lifelong obsession of mine. <laughs> so you'll note that little line about trash picking up in this poem that I just read you. But also, at this very moment... Uh, When I even feel some misgivings about going out and taking a walk in my neighborhood, you feel a little different about my lifelong lovely hobby of wearing a glove and carrying a tongs and picking up all the trash. Because you think this trash could have some virus on it now. (laughs) I'm scared of it. When did you start (laughs) picking up trash, Naomi? When did this become a hobby of yours? I started as a child. I started as a child. And um, it was in the years, probably when I was around 10, that my father, who was a journalist, my Palestinian father, he made me aware that new laws had come into being. There were He pointed out signs that were now appearing on, on roadsides, on the highways, saying that if you threw rubbish from your car or from anywhere, you could be fined and you might have to pay, you know, $50, $100. And I remember being fascinated by that because I thought, well, you know, the police better get busy because there's a lot of trash around. (laughs) So as a child, I remember, you know, I was a a Girl Scout, and I remember you had to have different little passions. People got involved in different things. And I always wanted to be like the tidy, the person who tidied up the neighborhood, clean up the neighborhood, pick up the junk. And it 
it just became a habit for me. And I've done it you know, my entire adult life. I do it in cities even where I don't live, which often fascinates people. And I say, well, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to go to another place and pick up trash? And I say, well, the trash is different. I like to see what it is in a different place. Really? How does it vary from place to place in your observation? Oh, just... What's your trash anthropology? Kind, I mean, just, yeah, all kinds of all kinds of differences. I mean, I'm fascinated by how rarely you find toys. You, you rarely find toys thrown down. So that suggests to me that children are better than grown-ups. But... <laughs> I, I think about, you know, how, like, it seems like in New York City, people must smoke a lot more, at least they used to, when they were going outside, than they do here. Because when I pick up trash there, I find many more cigarette boxes and cigarette butts than I find here. In places like Berlin, Germany, I'm fascinated by how many food wrappers you find, like, all kinds of sandwich wrappers and candy wrappers. And you think, my goodness, everyone's just snacking on the street here and, <laughs> and throwing all the wrappers down. Is it something you do just whenever you see trash on the street or do you sort of set aside designated times of the day when you're visiting Berlin or New York and this is my rubbish yeah. picking up time? Or do you just do it constantly? Yeah, no, I, I usually do like a twilight pickup and I go out in a normal time, 30 or 45 minutes with my a sack and my glove and my tongs and usually the sack is full by the time I come back. It's quite shocking how much you can pick up and in the state of Texas where I live there's a very common motto on the highways for many years now, don't mess with Texas. That's the so-called no littering motto but obviously it hasn't worked very well because people still do. <laughs> you mentioned that your, your father was a journalist. Tell me more about your mum and dad. How did they meet one another? Well, they met in the most peculiar way that, you know, one of those stories, like you think these people probably would never, it would never even be possible they would meet on the earth. My mother had been living in New York City as a painter, but she was from the Midwest in the United States. And my father was a Palestinian journalist, refugee student. He had begun working for BBC Radio when he was 14 years old. 14? In the old city of Jerusalem, yes, they hired him, shockingly, to read the evening news. At 14. And I used to say, when I was 12, you know, they must really have been hard up, because <laughs> who hires a 14-year-old to be the evening news reader? On the BBC and in Jerusalem. Said, no, they liked my accent. <laughs> they thought I had a good voice. He had a beautiful voice. I have seen even a, a, a documentary about Jerusalem called The Wall, in which my possibly by then 15-year-old father appears reading the evening news on the BBC, so I know he was telling the truth. But he went on to apply for scholarship after his family had lost everything in 1948 when the state of Israel was officially created. And, you know, for Palestinians who had grown up being close friends with Jewish people and Greek and Armenian people and having friends of all different religions and kinds, uh, a lot of tragedy went on there during that period that has still not been acknowledged by many, many people in the world. His family lost their home, they lost their, their modest savings in the bank, and they went to live in a small village in the West Bank. But my father knew from that point, he was around 20 years old to 21 when that happened, that he wanted to travel and go study 
elsewhere. So he applied, he got a scholarship, and he said, they said, where would you like to go in the United States? He didn't know anything about any cities, so he just said, send me to the middle. And they sent him to Kansas. (laughs) I guess in Australia it would be like somebody saying, send me to Uluru. Exactly. I'll be close to, I'll be close to all the coasts then. No, not quite. (laughs) So, so he was sent to Kansas, and my mother managed to arrive in the same town where he arrived, literally on the same day, within the same like 30-hour period, they arrived. And she was coming there to console a grieving friend, someone whose wedding she had stood up, I think she'd been like the best maid of honor at her friend's wedding only three months before, and the young husband had had a very shocking sudden death after he's only been married three months. And my mother was so stricken for her friend that she said, well, I'm going to give up my life in New York and I'm going to come and live there in Kansas and comfort you, be with you. So she came to Kansas and on the same day went, she and my father both went to apply for jobs at this Kansas State Hospital, which was a psychiatric hospital. And my mother was looking for a volunteer job, something to do, you know, while she was in that town consoling her friend and my father was looking for a paying job because he didn't have any money and and there they meet each other. And, and, and in, under what circumstances? What did they tell you about well, they the were, actual they event? They were sent as the, two, as the two new hires, in her case volunteer, in his case being paid, uh, to the office of like the human resources manager who sits down with these two people and says, could you possibly chaperone a party for our patients tonight. And my parents looked at each other, and my father would always say he knew in that moment this was the person he was going to marry. And we would tease him and say, Dad, that's ridiculous. She was just the first person you met. You didn't even meet any other people. You were just desperate, maybe. And he said, no, I just looked in her eyes, and I knew this is my person. My mother didn't quite have that feeling. Would she have ever met anyone like your father before? No, she had never met, she says she had never met an Arab before of any background. So she was quite fascinated by him. This man with a British accent and beautiful dark skin and olive skin and black hair and quite dashing looking. And she was fascinated staring at, I mean, they were staring at each other. And the idea that they would be asked to chaperone a party for patients they've never even encountered before. Now think about that. And it's a psychiatric hospital. So all the sweet, dear, troubled patients there. A very peculiar first date, that's for sure. It was a very peculiar first date, <laughs> yes. They remember, they would describe years later serving the cookies, serving the punch, trying to keep conversation going amongst the patients, going over to someone who's sitting. My father told me, He'd never been to a dance in his life. This was supposed to be a dance. And he said, well, you know, when you grow up in Jerusalem as a Muslim Palestinian, you've never been to a party (laughs) like this. So I like to think of the surreal quality of their original meeting. And I did have a chance many years later when I was an adult and I was doing a poetry workshop in that town. uh, Some of the beautiful teenagers I was seeing asked me if there was anywhere I would like to go in Topeka. 
And I said, yes, I would really like to go to your state hospital. <laughs> and they were a little shocked by that. And they said, well, you know, it's closing down. All the people have been moved to other hospitals and it's closing in like a week, two weeks. We'll have to get over there very quickly. So we went and I actually got to go be in that room. Where oh, the party my gosh. Had been held. The security officer with his jingling keys allowed us in there, and it was astonishing. The paint was peeling off the walls. My parents had always told me they went out on a balcony and stared across the Kansas fields into the dark night sky with the stars. And my father said, well, that was the moment I really knew this is my partner. And... I, I asked, you know, is there a balcony? And the man said, yes, but I don't think it's safe to go on it. And I said, well, I have to. <laughs> you have to open. You have to unlock that door immediately. I have to go there. The guard told us, this room hasn't been used in years. How did you even know it was here? And I said, well, it's a long story. And I looked at the kids and the kids, I had told them the story, a bit of it, and they were crying. The young teenagers were weeping because they were thinking about what are the odds in this world that people find one another? Really, it's a good question. Hmm. What are the odds? So your yeah. mom and dad had come from such different worlds, you know, meeting by chance in this very yeah. particular, remarkable way in a ballroom in a psychiatric hospital in Topeka, Kansas. What did their respective families think about them coming together, about, about the two of them getting married? Yeah, I don't think they liked it at all. My mother's parents refused to attend the wedding, and my father's parents were brokenhearted, I believe. This is my conjuring of, you know, in retrospect. I think they were brokenhearted because I think they realized he's really gone. He's going to stay gone. He's not going to spend time here. But that wouldn't be true because we did move back. My, my, my parents sort of made a pact when they married that we'll try to live in both of our places, your place and mine. Your grandmother, your father's mother, was there to welcome you. Tell me oh, about yes. her, about your city. She was truly an astonishing human being. And I think she has remained the pivotal person of all the relatives of my life besides my parents. She was... A powerful woman. She did not read or write because she was from a generation where not women were not all sent to school. But she had this uncanny gift for sort of reading into people's problems. I mean, she was almost a, like a community therapist. People would come to her with their problems. People from another village would show up. Well, who's that? Well, I don't know, but they need to talk to me. Uh, she spoke no English at all, so my very terrible Arabic, which I developed, <laughs> she was very gracious to my attempts. She was a, a great human being. She was not bitter. She was hopeful, optimistic. She had lived through everything being taken from her. She had lived through, you know, all kinds of threats and all the torment of occupation, which goes on to this day being tear gassed, being held at gunpoint, having young men in your family hauled off to prison with no charges against them. That was the texture and fabric of her existence. She would live to be 106. 106? And, yes. That's very and impressive. To, it was very <laughs> impressive. 
And she didn't have terrible medical problems. Like, you know, doctors were rarely called on her behalf for anything. I think when she was 105, they finally called a doctor for something. (laughs) But she used to say, and this would make everyone laugh, she would regale the, the whole family. I mean, she was the matriarch. She would say that she didn't want to die till everybody she didn't like died first. <laughs> and we would laugh because she liked everybody. I mean, she, I mean, obviously she didn't like it if an Israeli soldier showed up in a tank pointing a gun at her or at one of her sons or grandchildren. She didn't like that behavior. But she would never have said evil things about the soldier even after that. What she did say was, They don't know our stories. If they knew our stories, they couldn't treat us this way. Podcast, broadcast, and online. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. Naomi, tell me how your father was in Jerusalem. Did you see a different side of him in his hometown? Beautiful question, Sarah. Yes. My father was so happy in Jerusalem. This was his gravity place. This was where he could walk in the streets and people who had known him when he was a boy would call out to him and ask him about his childhood friends. And, you know, I remember having the the feeling when I was a teenager, my father knows everyone in Jerusalem. It was very grievous to him that his house was now occupied by Americans from Brooklyn, like how dare they? Why are they in my house? So would would you go and vi- would he go and visit the the family? Well, house? we went a few times. We never went inside of it, but we were invited to go inside of it by some rabbinical students. But my father didn't want to. He said it would be too painful. So I never did get to go inside. But we went to the outside and looked at it, and he would tell us to point to different windows and tell us what was inside those different rooms and. It was a very old and elegant kind of old world house on the rim of the old city. And his story was similar to so many displaced Palestinian stories. You were just a teenager in that year you spent living there between Jerusalem and Ramallah. When you think about that time now for you, Naomi, what are the the sights or the sounds or the smells that that really are most vivid for you at, at this point looking back? of the savory spices that you would smell or the bread baking in the traditional taboon ovens that were 100 years old, these clay rounded ovens. Mostly the smells stay with me, a kind of a smoky, savory smell of people around a fire, a campfire, a cook fire, the 
the burning smell, the delicious spices of Palestinian food. I think of the feeling of touching a stone, the hot white stones, and walking out into the fields. My father loved to talk to Bedouins, and so we would walk out in the countryside to talk to people and uh, I think I, I became very aware of my father's gift for for mingling with, with all people. And it must have been quite wonderful to hear your father speak in Arabic, to be able to hear that oh, beautiful so language. Oh, so beautiful. Yeah. Yes, it was gorgeous. It was just gorgeous. And to this day, whenever I hear people speaking Arabic in an airport or anywhere, I, I just want to go sidle up to them and see <laughs> how much I can understand and hear the beautiful lilt and musicality of the language. I love it. I love hearing it. And I feel very regretful that I don't speak it fluently. Was he a natural storyteller, yeah. your dad? I- he was. Yes, he loved stories. I mean, he would become a journalist, and journalists are obsessed with uh, stories, but he loved folk stories. Did your dad encourage you to write, Naomi? You started writing as a young you know, age. Did that come from him? Yeah, he he was definitely a believer that everybody should write and everybody should read and that we should all cut out headlines or news stories that we wanted to think about more later. And he was perplexed that all people didn't carry notebooks. You know, how can you live if you don't carry little notebooks to jot your thoughts down in? And I think when I started writing poems at the age of seven, there or six, I really started at six, but at the age of seven, I got much more serious about it and started sending them to children's magazines. And he saw that. I mean, he saw my pages on the table and my envelopes that I was shipping them off to magazines in. And uh, I think he was always pleased, but he was never pushy, and neither was my mother about doing anything. And in retrospect, I really, I really feel grateful to have had parents who were supportive, but never pushy. Like they never would have said, you should do this, or oh, you're good at that, so you should do it some more. Never. They never did that at all. Do you remember what you were writing poems about when you were six or seven? Oh, yeah. I do. I have such a vivid memory, and it's all because I wrote things down. I was writing, I think first I wrote a lot about, I was fascinated by cities and buildings and cities, and then I was writing about pets, my pet, my friend's pets, and characteristics of pets, and um, <laughs> and I was writing about sounds. I was very intrigued by the cricket sounds at night in the summers and the sounds of wind and rain and you know, just very humble things that were were around. But I think writing, I could see early on that it was a way that you stayed in touch with the little stuff of your own days and you were able to celebrate it. And the poems weren't all about you, but they were about things that you cared enough about to look at or to, to listen to, to think about. So there was that sense I had that if you are a writer, somehow you get to live twice. You know, you get to live your life and then you get to sit down in the evening or in the morning whenever you like to write and think about, well, what have I seen? What have I thought about in the past many hours? Mm. What was worth taking note of? And there was a great feeling of luxury and pleasure, being able to pick something out of a day's experiences and say, it's that. It's the way my grandmother climbed onto the bus. 
it's what she said in the department store restaurant. That's what I'm going to write about. <laughs> and I remember feeling that that was, although I wouldn't have said it in these words, that was a gift of the artist. That was what I got to do. I just lived a regular life like anybody else. But then because I knew how to write and I liked writing, I could put words down in a little notebook and look at them and it's as if they would wait for me. You know, I could go away, come back, and those words would still be there. And already that had a lot of power to me. One of your best-known poems, Naomi, is called Kindness. Can you tell me the story behind the writing of that poem, please? My husband and I got married in Texas, and we flew off immediately to South America, to the country of Colombia, where we had this really foolish idea that we wanted to travel the whole entire length of South America by land, like take buses, take trains, and go from the very tip top of Colombia to the very bottom, Tierra del Fuego. And that was our silly plan. We didn't realize, I guess, how far it was, but also we never anticipated we would be robbed of everything one week after our arrival. After one week in Colombia, we were on a bus riding toward the border of Ecuador, and uh, we were foolish to take a night bus, and we were approached by bandits who took everything we had, our passports, our money, our bags, our clothes, our cam his camera, everything, and then proceeded to kill a man on the bus because he had nothing. He was a poor native Indian men traveling wearing a white poncho. So if you've been part of this kind of brutal gang experience and somebody else has suffered worse than you have, you're very shaken up, don't know what to do. So they and just came out of, of the night and, and stole everything and, and killed someone. What did you do yeah. after they, they left? What did you and your yeah, husband well, do? Um, so then they vanish off into the night and uh, we're you know staggered by this situation and we have to plead with the bus driver to let us back on the bus. And, you know, we thought at that point he was probably in on the deal, th mm -hmm. that he was probably one of the bandits himself. But we get to the border of Ecuador. We can't cross in. We, we then have to talk a bus driver into letting us take the bus back to the town we've come from because what are we going to do? We have nothing. And we feel like, well, we'll have better luck if we go back to that town we just spent a few nights in because maybe a few people will remember us. And so that's where the poem Kindness ends up floating to me. Well, well tell me how you, you arrived back in the town with nothing. Where did you go yeah, first? Yeah, we arrived back and we go to a we go to a plaza in the center of town where we've sat before, and a man comes up to us and says in Spanish, and our Spanish is no better than our Arabic, but he comes up and says, what happened to you in Spanish? Because he could tell we were very shaken up people, you know, disheveled. And we tried to explain, and he just said, oh, que lastima, lo siento. And he had a kindness in his tone. He stared at us with, with sorrow, sad that that would happen to visitors in his country. And then he left, and it hit me that his kindness was like a, a moment of sanity returning, like somebody speaking kindly to you after you've been through big trauma. I mean, I'm sure it's like what people suffering from the virus now feel when a nurse approaches them with the equipment they need to, to be treated. You know, like when you're desperate, you're, you're just ready to cling on to anything or anybody who would look at you. And so we go back, we sit on a bench, and then... It's as if I hear a voice speaking to me, and that's the voice 
in this poem. It's not my voice. It was a voice that spoke to me in a time of need. And all I had was a little notebook and pencil in my pocket. That was the only thing I had left. So I wrote the poem down and mostly it stayed maybe one word or two words changed, but mostly it stayed that way. Could you read it for us, Naomi? Yes. Thank you, Sarah. Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go, so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to gaze at bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. Thank you, Naomi. What did you do after this poem came to you and you wrote it down in your notebook on this plaza in a little town in Colombia with yeah. no money, no passports, nothing? Yeah, nothing. Yeah, well, you know, actually, and this is a power of writing, I think. Sometimes when you allow, you know, just words to come through you, whether they're coming from a voice floating in the air across the plaza or from your own head or your own memory or imagination, I think that act of putting the words on a page feels very stabilizing somehow. So suddenly I had a thought of what I could do. My husband by then, my brand new husband of one week, had hitchhiked off to the larger town of Cali to see if he could do this thing people used to do in the old days, get our traveler's checks reinstated. He somehow still had the numbers in his pocket to those checks, but he had left me there in Popayan, which sounds reckless in retrospect, but he was scared about hitchhiking to a bigger city. What was going to happen to him? And so I was alone and trying to figure out where I should do. And I went to a little house of people we had met and spoke to them in Spanish and tried to explain. We Just random people we had talked to on the street thinking, well, they'll remember me. They've seen me before in a better circumstance when I still had a backpack. 
And I said to them, I needed to sleep on their floor. Would they let me come in and sleep? And they did. They let me make a pallet inside their tiny living room. And I've never forgotten they were watching boxing or wrestling on television. (laughs) And it just felt so surreal to be lying on this floor, anxious, and this, this fighting match going on in Spanish on television. And then I also had the idea that I could follow the little boys next day, because by this time I was very hungry. I hadn't eaten in like 24 hours. And I could follow the little boys who picked up bottles in the streets, soda bottles, and I'd seen them turning them in in little groceries and getting a few pesos back. And I thought, well, I could do that. I'm a trash picker. I know how to do that. I'll go with these boys. And of course, they were surprised to see this grown-up American wanting to do this with them, but they took me to the ditches where they knew we'd find the most bottles. And, And so that's what when I mentioned gazing at bread, you know, you're so hungry, you're out there staring in the window of a bakery longingly. Oh, if I could just only have a bread bun. And that's how I got my bread buns, by walking with them. Did your young husband come back safely to you after he'd hitchhiked off to that larger town? He did. He came back safely and miraculously by that point, these little boys that I was now hanging out with in the streets had figured out they knew a place where they thought we could find our passports. And one of them said something like, the passports all go in a box. They were used to thieves throwing passports in some box in an alleyway behind a tourist office because that way, the, you know, the thieves didn't want to be caught with someone else's passport because that would identify them as thieves. So the boys took me to the box and there were our passports. So my husband came back and suddenly we had a little money again, and then we had our passports so we could leave the country. Oh, my goodness. We didn't have very good wardrobes, but (laughs) that was it. Did you keep (laughs) traveling south on your great trek from one end of South America to the the other? Well, we did, but we altered altered the journey somewhat. We we only ended up seeing four countries, (laughs) but we also got poisoned in Bolivia and nearly died. So, you know, it wasn't the best honeymoon (laughs) on Earth. But as I would say later, if you start having these kinds of experiences, on your honeymoon, your life can only get better. <laughs> Everything's smooth then on in. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, everything was easier after that. It, it is such a uh, traumatic or intense thing to go through, Naomi. Does it stay with you? Do you find yourself thinking back about that night? I definitely think I understand my father's refugee experience a little better, just becoming a refugee on a journey. I mean, it's such a petty thing compared to someone's entire life, just having all your luggage and your money and so forth taken is there's nothing compared to having someone come in at gunpoint and say, leave your house now and you'll never be back here. I mean, that's traumatic. That's so traumatic. And you think, how many people in our world have experienced this? In how many countries? So many countries. There are refugees, people living in exile of all kinds. And it is, unfortunately, a very, very commonplace human experience. So having had such a petty experience, I do feel like my imagination is better. And I do feel that I always have felt extremely grateful when I show up somewhere safely and I actually get to my destination. You know, I know that doesn't always happen. And So I guess that stayed with me. That's definitely stayed with me. What kind of responses have you had to that poem over the years? What kind of stories have people told you about how that poem has connected with them? 
Oh my gosh, so many stories. You know, it's been printed in so many magazines, books, websites. So many people have written to me that they've read it at people's bedsides in hospital or read it at someone's memorial service or, I mean, I've had lots and lots of human contact through the poem. And of course, I always say, of course, feel free, take it. It's yours. It is a poem that came to me when I needed it, and I give it to you. If you need it, take it. And I really feel that poems have that portable versatility that they can apply to so many different circumstances. Poems are flexible. They're fluent. They can, you know, come to someone in their own life and speak to their own life experience, whatever it might be. I love that Walt Whitman quote about poetry. To have a great poem, you have to have a great audience. (laughs) So much depends on on the listener, your openness. One of your audiences are are young people. You have this title, Young People's Poet Laureate of the United States. What yeah. does that mean? What What does that title bestow? What does the responsibility that comes with that title, Naomi? Well, you're very kind to ask. It's basically like an official encourager <laughs> and an encourager of poetry, both to read it more and to write it. And also, I feel it's very important to encourage teachers to feel comfortable teaching it. I always say you don't have to be an expert on poetry to share a poem. You don't have to even understand a poem completely, every single word and phrase and image in a poem, to share it. Because I guarantee someone in your class might understand it differently or better than you think you do. Enjoy the mystery of poetry. Bask in it. Savor it. Feel the language in your mouth. Say it. And see, you know, what new thought is lit up in your mind. So I had never had any ambition whatsoever to any kind of laureate title. It kind of gives me a the jitters, such a title. <laughs> um, I prefer to be invisible and in the margins whenever possible. But when I had this lovely, gracious call from the Poetry Foundation of the United States in Chicago, and they said, we've, we've selected you. They didn't ask me, they just told me, <laughs> you are the the next Young People's Poet Laureate. And since I'd been writing for young people for many years, uh, you know, I'd always hoped my poems might be friendly to young readers, and then I'd done many books for young readers. There's no way I could have declined. And now, because of the quarantine, they've just extended my tenure for another year because so many of our nice plans for the next few months had to be cancelled. You've um, um, taught poetry to young people in so many different kinds of, of settings. Yeah. Naomi, which have been the yeah. toughest? Which ones do you walk in and think, I ah, just don't know how this is going to go? Well, yeah, no, that's so funny you would ask that because after all these years, I have definitely been, I feel, in almost every possible circumstance. You know, I've been shuttled into a school cafeteria with 500 kids and told, okay, give them a poetry experience. Or, you know, very reluctant kids who are in a summer program because they didn't do well in their regular school and punished. it's so hot inside their classroom and the air conditioning is broken and the teacher says, okay, they're yours now. And you look at them and they all look hostile. And then 
something amazing always happens. Like a few summers ago when that particular scene was happening here in San Antonio, my own city, I, I looked at this group and I thought, okay, this could be the first day it ever didn't work. <laughs> I can just feel that this could be the group. And a boy raised his hand right at the outset and I thought he was going to say something, you know, wisecrack, smart to me. And he said, do you think it's possible to be in love with a single word? And then I said, knowing it was a dangerous question, of course I do. I think it's possible to be in love with many words. Do you have a word? And, you know, then he could have said anything. And he said, lyrical. I just, I just think about that word all the time. When life isn't going well, I want my life to be lyrical. And I thought, oh my God, this is the best. And we proceeded to have one of the most gorgeous hours where I just had the kids write about words they carry in their minds and mouths, words they like to say. And you know, nobody wrote anything off color. Nobody wrote anything ugly. They wrote the most beautiful poems. And that was something that felt manageable to them. You know, focus on a single word you love. And at the end of the hour, everybody, I remember everybody wanted to read. And these were like the gangsters of the school. <laughs> these were like the wildest kids in the whole school who were writing these exquisite love poems to single words. And I, I do like to say that I've never been anywhere in my life where poetry didn't live, where if you figured out a way just to encourage people to look at their own experience, pick out a story, tell something, show me what happened, show me that scene, that everybody has something. Everybody has so much. I've loved hearing your stories today. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. Thank you so much, Sarah. You're the best person to talk to I ever talked to in my life. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Podcast, broadcast and online. On Conversations from Home, my guest has been Naomi Shihab Nye. Naomi has written many books of poetry and also fiction. Her new book is Castaway, Poems from Our Time. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. listening to a podcast of conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au/conversations.